From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Edson, and this is American Rehab, Chapter 7, The Work Cure. We left off last time with reporters Shoshana Walter and Laura Starczewski getting messages from people inside the Senecor program. People who are exhausted from the work Senecor required of them. People who are scared. People who had fled. And we needed to find out what is happening to these people inside Senecor. To find out, Sho spent more than a year talking to hundreds of Senecor participants. But we're going to start with just one story of one person who needed help with his addiction. On a cold, windy winter day in December 2018, Laura and I drove from Baton Rouge to a rural parish where most of the GPS map is green, covered with huge swaths of pine forest. So he works here or he's studying here? He's studying here. He's studying welding. Okay. We pull into the parking lot at Central Louisiana Technical Community College. We're here to meet a source for the first time. Let me call him. Hey, Chris, it's Shoshana. Uh, hey. hey, we just got here. We pulled into the parking lot and we're... Um, Chris we're Kuhn walks towards us wearing a big sweatshirt and heavy work pants. He's coming from welding class, so he's sweating even though it's cold out. And he looks a bit self-conscious, kind of hunched over, like he's trying to take up less space than he actually does. Yes. Hi. How you doing? Good, nice how are to you? meet you. I know, nice to meet you. This is Laura. And... I think we could probably sit here or sit in your car if y'all are cold. How how much time do you have? You're right in the middle of classes, right? Mm-hmm. I got till. Uh, Chris crams well, himself into the back seat of our little rental car. He takes a swig of his diet Dr Pepper and then stashes the bottle into the seat back pocket. He tells us opioids are a huge problem in this parish. Meth and heroin. Those are the two biggest things from what I see. I think I did meth the first time when I was like 15. Because mm-hmm. that shit used to be everywhere around here. And then it went away. And now it's back. Chris also discovered opioids when he was 15. Broke his ankle after crashing a three-wheeler. He started taking one prescribed pain pill, then two. And he noticed that it not only got rid of his throbbing ankle pain... It gave him this light, bright feeling. You start to feel warm, like somebody put an electric blanket around you. You feel that, and you just feel euphoria, but it's a different euphoria. It's like nothing else matters. Chris kept chasing that feeling as years passed. He also started working. He stocked shelves at a convenience store. He was aroused about on an offshore oil rig. And eventually, Chris transitioned to heroin. On his pizza delivery job, he'd run into the bathroom at Circle K to shoot up, then get back into the car high. It wasn't long before Chris lost that job. Chris wanted to make bigger plans, but something always seemed to go wrong. He finished EMT school, but didn't take the test. His best friend died. He almost got married. Then he found out his fiance had cheated on him. Then when he was 23, Chris overdosed. A friend revived him. But Chris knew he'd been close to stopping breathing altogether. That was kind of an eye-opener. That, and one time, I was at my granny's house. And uh, I saw this paperwork out one day. She was looking into buying me a funeral plot, like a plot of land by my grandpa. Yeah. That's an eye-opener, too. Whenever you see that your people are buying you a fucking cemetery plot, 
And I'm like, I'm 23 years old, and they're planning on burying me. Huh. Chris's family sent him to rehab once. He was there about a month. After he got out, he lasted one day before he relapsed. Eventually, Chris got arrested with meth. He'd been arrested before, but now he was facing his first felony conviction. For two months, Chris sat in jail waiting for movement on his case. The Grant Parish Detention Center looks like a big warehouse with a tall razor wire fence around it. Inside, men shared bunk beds in a room with a few televisions and a remote control held together with scotch tape. Chris spent his days reading, watching music videos, and trying to ignore the constant stream of Jerry Springer and Maury Povich. One day, a guard told Chris a lawyer was there to see him, a defense attorney his dad had hired. Chris shuffled into his orange plastic jail sandals and followed the guard to a kiosk. The attorney told Chris he had an idea. He said, I can get you out. You're going to a rehab. And he said, uh, he said it's a place called Cinecore, and it's 18 to 24 months. I was like, yeah. I was like, that sounds horrible. He's like, well, you can sit here if you want to. You can stay sitting here. Chris was facing up to five years in prison. But if he completed the Cinecore program, there was the chance the prosecutor would reduce his charges or drop them altogether. Plus, to Chris, any rehab had to be better than being locked up. So Chris chose Senecor, and his judge signed the order, sending him there. As soon as Chris made the decision to go, the clock started ticking. I didn't even have time to take a shower, because the judge said I had to be at Senecor by, I think, six hours or something like that. I had six hours to get there. And if I wasn't checked in, then they were going to revoke my bond, and I'd have a warrant. His granny picked him up from the jail. On the drive to Senecor, Chris sat looking out the window with his mind going in circles. Really, all I kept thinking was two years. Like, I'm going to be here for two years. Like, I wonder what it's going to be like. Am I going to be able to see my family? Are the people going to be cool? Are they going to be assholes? How long is this going to be? Like, I know it's going to be two years, but, you know, mentally, how long? Because two years can go by like that or... It could take a lifetime. And it took a lifetime. Around noon, they pulled off the highway in Baton Rouge and stopped outside a red brick building. The sun beat down on Chris's back as he hoisted his suitcase out of the car. And as soon as I walked in, there were some people there just yelling at each other, telling people to go sit and time out. And I was like, what is this? If Chris couldn't make it at Senecor, he would face up to five years in prison. The first step was to get through 30 days of orientation. I'll never forget it. Uh, I came in, it was just this classroom. And there was, it was like 30 of us. You come in and tell you to sit down and then they start handing out like the Senecor handbook that's like this thick. And... They just go over it page by page every day so you can just damn near recite everything. Shoes tied, belt on, shirt tucked in. Your shoes all had to be at the foot of your bed going around it. Work boots to flippity-flops. There was an instruction on how to behave for every moment of the day, which Chris could adapt to. 
Senecor was grimy. He got used to that. We're living in a ran-down, renovated fucking psych ward with mold everywhere. He got used to the mice making nests in his sock drawer and the bigger rodents that scurried inside the ceilings and got into the food. Rats? Dude. But the rules and the punishments? That was another thing. One wrong step would send Chris into a whole labyrinth of protocols. Many of them came straight from Synanon, the cult-like rehab that spawned Senecor in the 1960s. Like a pull-up, it's a correction. Senecor's founder, Luke Austin, called it a verbal chastisement that could be given out by any member of Senecor. Since I was younger, all I ever thought was, you know, if you mess up, you man up and you take your leg. You don't tell on nobody else. But any time he saw someone messing up, the rule said Chris had to correct them and then report that person to a staff member. The first time I did it, I felt like a piece of shit. Chris gave out his first pull-up when he reported to staff that a guy washing dishes in the kitchen had threatened him. He didn't realize that the threat meant the guy had broken one of the original cardinal rules at Senecor. No acts or threats of physical violence. And this dude was like, you know, trying to avoid like a 10-year prison sentence. So I told on this guy for a big deal that could have got him kicked out my first time. So that put a bad taste in my mouth. Like this dude came up to me afterwards and he was like, if I think I'm about to get kicked out, he said, he said you better sleep with one eye open because I ain't going back to prison. I was like, oh, shit. I was like, here I go. It just starts putting off all these different scenarios in your head. Like, I get this person kicked out. All their friends are going to be pissed at me. And what if I get kicked out and then get sent to the same prison as him? The guy didn't get kicked out. But Chris had to keep giving pull-ups. He says Senecor required people to give out 10 every week. Chris says he followed the rules as best he could. He wanted to believe that Senecor could help him, so he went with the program. I actually taught orientation for about three months. And I did all the little Senecor games. The punishments were supposed to give you insight, transform you. But they didn't feel transformative to Chris. They do what's called a hot seat. If you really mess up, like if you relapse, they make you sit in this chair, uh, an office chair, so you can spin around. And then they get 15 chairs and put them around you in a circle. The hot seat is a kind of mutated version of the Synanon game. The person in the hot seat can't speak, and the people in the circle can say anything they want. You'll hear people getting told the worst shit about themselves. You're a stupid, you're a fucking whore, and you're nothing but a junkie. Supposed to be therapeutic in some way, because they say that, uh... You can't see your own flaws, but other people can. Many of the people I talked to who went through Senecor's program talked about the humiliation they felt when subjected to these punishments. People like Paul Porsche. He spent almost a decade in and out of Senecor, both as a participant and a staff member. And they have a tool that's called the verbal chair. And it's essentially a timeout tool used for adults. And you have to go sit in timeout, right? Kristen Carroll has been to three Senecor locations, Houston, Fort Worth, and Baton Rouge. She remembered getting in trouble after she came into Senecor off the streets, court-ordered. She didn't have a bra, and some guy reported her. He's like, sit in the verbal. And I sit down, and I'm like, 
they're allowed to get in your face and scream at you, in your face and scream at you. And they're like, who do you think you are coming here and trying to tempt us? In my face, guys yelling at me like this. And I'm like, so uncomfortable. My face is so red, I'm like on the verge of tears. And you know, it goes on for like 15 minutes and then they're like, okay, go back to what you were doing. Just like it was nothing. Like they are trying to brainwash you. You're not an individual, you're just part of Cinecore. The whole culture of Senecor, all these rules and punishments designed to break people down, it's all part of the treatment. The other big part, work. They had a guy who was doing electrical work, doing an electrician's job. This guy was not an electrician by any means, okay? I broke my foot at work in Senecor. Scaffold fell on my foot. There was a bunch of people that ended up hurting their backs, hurting their legs, slipping in holes. They'd go to the hospital, and they'd go back to work most of the time. That's ahead after the break. Hello, listener. My name is Najib Amini, and I am a producer here at Reveal. Reveal is a nonprofit news organization, and we depend on support from our listeners, listeners like you. Donate today at revealnews.org slash donate. It helps fund the stories that we tell and helps me feed my cat. So thank you. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Edson. We're back with American Rehab, picking up Chris Kuhn's story of going through the Senecor program in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Chris made it through orientation, but now it was time for the rest of his treatment to begin. His reveals Shoshana Walter. Once Chris learned all the rules and tools, Senecor started him with what the program calls work therapy. One day you might go work at a restaurant. The next day you might go work at a place that bags up mulch, where you're throwing 50-pound bags of mulch for 12 hours. That, that was usually a punishment job. If you got in trouble, that's where they sent you. I did scaffold building, painting, insulation, and uh, power washing and sandblasting. Chris worked on the catering staff at an event with a guest list, including the governor of Louisiana. He had to clean up all the trash, food, and spilled drinks in the stands after LSU football games. He says he climbed high in the air to pressure wash pigeon poop off of grain silos that towered over the Mississippi River, slipping and sliding around with no respirator. I think the worst job I ever had there was rod busting. I'd never heard of it. And what rod busting is, is you take the rebar and you got to make cages out of it. So when they pour the concrete, it supports it. And that is some back-breaking ass labor. Chris had worked tough jobs before, like on that offshore oil rig. But he wasn't used to the conditions on the Senecor job sites. They send you to work with donated bread and ham. Like most of the time, whatever your lunch is, is gonna, the bread will be moldy. 
um, the ham. I didn't touch the ham. I'd eat a bag of chips if it wasn't open and drink it. And they give you one bottle of water for a 12-hour shift. You kidding me? 12-hour shift in 99, 105-degree heat. Chris told his family what was going on. He'd sneak a phone call here and there to Granny, and he saw his parents a few times at visitation. They'd listen, then tell Chris it was better than jail. Once the staff at Senecor realized Chris had offshore experience, he spent most of his time working in the petrochemical plants near the Mississippi River. Senecor also sent people to work for companies you know, national and global corporations, Exxon, Shell, Walmart. Shell told us they didn't find any evidence that Senecor participants worked there, and Exxon denied our findings. But we confirmed that subcontractors for the companies did use Senecor workers. Walmart told us that they expected their subcontractor to follow the law. Chris says a lot of these jobs were dangerous. There was a bunch of people that ended up hurting their backs, hurting their legs, slipping in holes. You're always bending down, lifting heavy shit up. What happened in those situations when people were hurt like that? They'd go to the hospital and they'd go back to work most of the time. In the 90s, one man died on the job after falling off scaffolding. Afterwards, OSHA fined Rhodes Office Products, the company where he was working, $2,250. They also recommended that Senecor better train and prepare residents for safety hazards on the job. Here's just a sample of the injuries that have happened at other job sites since then. Jason May is from New Orleans. He was court-ordered to the Baton Rouge facility about a decade ago, and he happened to love the program. I broke my foot at work in Senecor. Scaffold fell on my foot, broke my foot. I had a clean break, is what they call it. Alistair Williams fell off scaffolding at a chemical plant six years ago. I fell, and my knee was literally shattered. Paul Porsche told me what happened to a guy named Nicholas Culpepper. They had a guy who was doing electrical work, doing an electrician's job. This guy was not an electrician by any means, okay? Nicholas was up on a 10-foot ladder when he touched a live wire. And it threw him off the ladder and broke his back. Senecor participants have been seriously injured more than two dozen times in the past 10 years, according to workers' compensation and safety records. At least one other person broke their back. Chris Kuhn managed to work for a few months, but eventually he got hurt too. We asked Senecor about Chris's injury, but they refused to talk about it. Other participants remember Chris getting hurt, though. He says it happened at that local Cajun seasoning factory in Baton Rouge, Louisiana Fish Fry. They wouldn't comment either. It was the middle of the night. Chris and some other workers were trying to build a support for a crane that could hoist up heavy sacks of spices. A metal beam dangled from a forklift, and Chris scrambled underneath to hold it in place. I really don't know how much it weighed. Three to six hundred pound piece of metal. It was probably like 20 feet long. Chris says the guy at the other end let go without any warning, and the beam fell down onto Chris's shoulder. I felt something pop. I heard it pop. And then pain. 
just throbbing, holy shit, my arm's about to fall off pain. Chris says he cussed a lot and sat down on the floor. Eventually, he got to see a doctor who told him he needed an MRI. But then, Chris says, Senecor's vocational services manager, the person who sends people to work and makes the work contracts with outside companies, he intervened. I told him, I'm like, man, I kind of feel like a flyer that got his wing pulled off. I was like, I'm, I don't think I could go to work right now. And his response was that uh, if I'm not helping them, then they can't help me. And if I'm not making money, then I'm not helping them. And he told me that uh, if I want, if I need an MRI, then I could go back to where I came from. He's like, I'm sure they can get you an MRI in jail. So Chris skipped the MRI. He still hasn't had one. We asked Senecor about this too, but they wouldn't answer our questions. To this day, Chris says his shoulder still hurts and he doesn't have full range of motion. Going up, that's not too bad, but like reaching across from me, pushing something, yeah, that hurts. Back at Senecor, he rested for a few days and then he went back to work. After months of working all these different physically hard jobs, trying to follow all the rules and not get in trouble, giving out the requisite number of pull-ups, not getting enough sleep or enough to eat, there was one more thing eating away at Chris. It was the things he would overhear at the job sites when he was working just as hard as anybody else. They talk about you like you were just, like you were inventory, like you weren't even a person. I've heard bosses talking, being like, yeah, we need to order like five more Cinecores for tomorrow. Or come up to you and be like, hey, Cinecore, come here. I actually got in trouble because this dude kept saying, hey, Cinecore. I told him, I was like, that's not my name. I was like, my name's Chris. I was like, like you can call me, you know, man, guy, dude, hey, that works. Just don't call me Cinecore. And just just to see that people just disregard you like that. Nobody should have to feel that. For all this work, Chris wasn't getting paid anything. Senecor kept all of his wages. Well, I guess technically I can't say he wasn't paid anything. You're getting paid three packs of $3 a pack cigarettes a week. Man, out here working 84 hours a week, for nothing, for peanuts. Chris spent about 18 months working for cigarettes as pay. That's the program policy. And for all the hours he was working in the plants, subcontractors for giant oil and gas and chemical companies were paying money straight to Senecor. Laura asked Chris about this. Did you ever end up getting any of your wages? Oh, no. You don't get that. I didn't even think that was ever a possibility. I wonder how much money you made for them while you were there. Oh, God, thousands, tens of thousands. They make so much money. It is ridiculous. They're swimming in it, and they act like they're poor. I'd really like to see all them people exposed for all they do, even if it doesn't get shut down, even if it's just enough to, you know, make people pay attention to what they're doing and have them be a lot more accountable. They preach accountability all day. But if you ask them, where's my money going? Where's this? You know, I'm making 1500 a week for y'all, and y'all can't change a fucking light bulb in my room. And where's the money going? 
Senecor says the money is going towards room and board and treatment. That's what Chris wanted. Treatment to help him overcome his addiction to heroin. He had already overdosed once and almost died. For him, the stakes were life or death. Chris had struggled with drug use for almost a decade by the time he got to Senecor. He did want to stop using. His first challenge was to stay away from all the drugs people had inside Senecor. I've seen people come in with like saran wrap sandwich bags full of pills. I saw this dude pull a hunk of heroin about this big out of his sock. I've seen people come in with meth, heroin, boxing. I've seen people brewing alcohol in their rooms, in their ceilings. We asked Chris if he ever saw any drugs out on job sites. Oh, yes. Dear Lord, yes. Sometimes, Senecor hired out crews to clean up Louisiana State University's stadium after football games. Technically, no drinking is allowed, but Chris says he'd find bottles of alcohol in the stands. A lot of times I'd find pill bottles that people must have just dropped, and I'd throw them away. The university didn't respond to our questions about this. Sometimes Senecor sent Chris to work in restaurants serving people food. Every restaurant I've ever worked at, Free World and Senecor, people are doing drugs. He spent most of his time working long days at the petrochemical plants on the Mississippi River. He'd be outside climbing high in the air on scaffolding or bending rebar into cages. In the plants, God, let's see, there's usually going to be meth and pain pills. You got to think, you're working a place that, depending on your job, you're working your ass off for 12 hours a day, out in the elements, seven days a week. Some people can do that with just coffee. Some people can't. Given that he was constantly surrounded by drugs on job sites and inside the Senecor building, it's pretty amazing that Chris only relapsed a few times in the program. Each time, he got in trouble. The punishment for relapsing was usually losing a month of family visits and getting set backward a month in the program, meaning you'd have to stay and work an extra month. At these moments when Chris needed support the most, there was only punishment, and the counseling his wages were supposed to pay for, it almost never happened. Two months I was there, they didn't even have counselors. I think that was supposed to be like a little hush-hush deal. Chris was supposed to do three group sessions a week, but he worked so much there was barely time. For a long stretch, he was working 84 hours a week. Any one-on-one counseling sessions? Once a month, maybe. But I went like eight months without doing a one-on-one. Just the counselor forgetting, like, hey, I need to see you. It's like, sorry. They were not getting their groups. They were not getting their individuals. And basically, they were just working. Melanie Cephalou was a counselor at Senecor while Chris was there. With them having to work so many hours, and then you're chasing them down at night, and begging them to come to your office, and they're tired, and they're hungry, and they're wanting a bath, and it wasn't getting done. Melanie was Chris's counselor, but she doesn't remember too much about him, probably because she barely got time with clients, and because her caseload could be as high as 50 people at a time. 
if I had to stay till 11 o'clock, I would stay and go get them. I'd even pull them out of the bed, you know, and they would be sound asleep and have a session with them. And basically, we were all doing it, you know. Senecor told participants they would get one individual session a week. Sessions were supposed to be an hour long, but there were only a few counselors and about 150 beds at Senecor. So the counselors had a system. Melanie learned it when she was hired. Basically, come back here, sign your treatment plan. How you doing? Are you staying sober? On paper, Melanie turned those quick check-ins into full sessions. And what should had been an hour session turned into maybe a 10 or 15-minute session. Melanie Cephalou has since had her counseling certification suspended for having a relationship with a Senecor client. Other counselors at Senecor couldn't believe what passed for treatment. Nothing was really off the table. You could bring up things from their past. You could cuss at them. You know, you could completely degrade their character. And actual counseling sessions? Those were so hard to squeeze in that counselors decided to fight back. Some would have 60, 70 hours a week, but also never have a break, a day off. And so that's what we were trying to prove. Like, look at the pattern. That's coming up on American Rehab from Reveal. I may sound biased here, but I think our stories are pretty great. And if you're listening to this, I have a feeling that, well, you might agree. But have you ever been left wanting even more? Reveal's newsletter goes behind the scenes. Reporters describe how they first found out about these stories and the challenges they face reporting them. Plus, recommended reads and more. Subscribe now at revealnews.org newsletter. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Edson. While Senecor participants were spending all their time working, counselors back at the Baton Rouge facility were trying to figure out how to help them. Counseling intern Tara Dixon came in as a master's student, expecting training. Instead, she learned a system from the other counselors. Grab the participants anytime they're available, no matter how short, and mark it down as a full therapy session. Here's Reveal's Shoshana Walter. Tara also learned a list of topics that were not to be discussed during counseling sessions. Participants were not allowed to talk to her about Senecor's program or about the staff. They were not allowed to talk about the work. And if any other staff found out somebody had broken this rule... We got blasted, too. When it would come out, 
we got pulled into the office with the client and yelled at in front of the client as in this shouldn't have happened. So they knew, they knew that when they told me something, that there was that chance. The whole concept of confidentiality didn't seem to apply. Tara's clients learned to censor themselves to avoid getting themselves or her in trouble. When participants were being punished, though, nothing was off the table. I believe it was like Sundays, they did family meeting where everybody in the facility showed up. They put someone in the hot seat and then people could just go at them. The hot seat is that punishment Chris described, where one person sits in the middle of a circle and other participants surround them and yell. Nothing was really off the table. You could bring up things from their past. You could cuss at them. You know, you could completely degrade their character. And from me, from a psychological standpoint, it was very alarming um, and not something I was willing to do at all. Staff would be encouraged to yell. Like counseling staff were encouraged to do that. All staff. Yeah. All staff. Where That was part of the program. It was calling people out. What was your perspective on that as, as a counselor and in school? Like, is that anything you had learned about treatment and counseling? No, not at all. Not even a little bit. As much as Tara tried to avoid it, Work just kept coming up in the little time she had with participants. It was very, very common in counseling sessions for people to say, I'm working all the time. Like, I haven't had a day off in three weeks and, you know, be frustrated. And they start to piece together. Like, I'm not getting a cent of this. Tara checked the time books to see how many hours they were working. And as they hit 40, it was highlighted. And so... You could see that it kept going. And some, like, would have 60, 70 hours a week, but also never have a break, a day off. Participants were supposed to come to three groups every single week. Tara knew that wasn't happening. So she and her supervisor, clinical director, Peggy Billado, started documenting it in a spreadsheet. You know, somebody who was working up to the 100 hours in a row had made zero groups, you know? And so that's what we were trying to prove. Like, look at the pattern. Tara and Peggy brought their spreadsheet to a staff meeting, but she says the facility director shut them down. This conversation's over. If they talk in your office about how much they're working, you tell them to come to me. You're not, they can't talk about it in counseling. And he was like, and don't look at those time books again. And that was it. As soon as she finished her internship hours, Tara Dixon left Senecor. She has a private practice now. But she remembers seeing all the Senecor clients who needed help, who relapsed at the facility, who left to get treatment at other places, because they couldn't get the help they needed at Senecor. She still sometimes hears about former Senecor clients. And still today, there's a Facebook group. And still today, you it's very common R.I.P. this person, R.I.P. this person, and people dying constantly who were in the program. And so I I think they need to take a look at that, you know? What's your rate of success? I asked Senecor about their success rate. In an email, a spokesperson told me that fewer than 8% of people graduate from their program. Relapse is common. And when people who use opioids relapse after not using for a while— 
they're at a higher risk of overdose. We've lost a handful of the people we've interviewed over the course of this reporting. Some of them we know died of overdoses. Some we're not sure. But their deaths hammered home the reality of addiction treatment. It is a matter of life and death. Which is why I called up an expert who could really evaluate what Senecor is doing. All of it. The unpaid work, the punishments, the lack of counseling. I reached Dr. Sarah Wakeman online in her office in Boston. Hi, can you guys hear me now? Yeah. Okay. Dr. Wakeman is an addiction medicine doctor at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. She's the medical director of their substance use disorder program, and she also trains other doctors in how to treat addiction. I told Dr. Wakeman that in Senecor's program, unpaid work is the main treatment. That sounds more like servitude than um, anything that could be considered treatment. Dr. Wakeman says that having a stable, paying job could, of course, be helpful for somebody trying to overcome an addiction. But working itself, that's not a treatment for a condition she considers a disease like any other. A good sort of reality check of whether we are providing good treatment is to replace substance use disorder with another chronic illness and ask ourselves if we would treat patients with that disease the same way. Would we ever take a patient with diabetes or heart disease or high blood pressure or cancer and basically force them to work without pay and tell them that it's in their best interest? I mean, I think that would be ludicrous and obviously malpractice if we treated another patient group that way. Decades of research show that Senecor's other tactics, the hot seat, pull-ups, mirror therapy, the game, do not work. Dr. Wakeman agrees those methods do not help people recover. In fact, they make it more likely that people will leave treatment and relapse. When I asked her about the lack of counseling at Senecor, what she said surprised me. She told me about a study comparing different treatments for opioid addiction. 95% of the people who got counseling alone relapsed. So just offering counseling, that doesn't actually help. You know, 95% fail rate. So again, for opioid use disorder, that's really not our standard of care. That's not what we should be offering. And then not even offering that and just working people till they're bone tired. You know, that's not treatment. There's a refrain here. That's not treatment. Senecor is not offering actual treatment for opioid addiction. So what does a proven treatment look like? What does help people? The most effective treatment is daily medication. That's according to Dr. Wakeman and the U.S. Surgeon General's office, which calls it the gold standard treatment model, which can be hard for patients to accept. People don't want to have to manage a chronic illness. That stinks. But um, there's no shame in needing effective treatment for that. People can get shamed in the recovery world for taking daily medication because that medication is a small dose of an opioid. You've probably heard of methadone. People have to show up every day at a clinic to get it. They often drink their dose as a liquid from a little cup. Buprenorphine is another effective daily medication. It can be a tablet or a strip you dissolve in your mouth. People who take buprenorphine or methadone are at much lower risk of dying from an overdose than people who only get counseling or get no treatment at all. 
they're more likely to stay alive and to not die from overdose or from other causes. And they're more likely to have improvements in their quality of life, their social functioning, their ability to stay out of the correctional system, to work, to have relationships, all the things that we want out of life and wellness and recovery. It's not a panacea. Many people are able to reduce or stop their use of opioids without using these medications. Some people have a bad reaction to them or find them ineffective. But the numbers prove that for most people, even with no other treatment, no counseling, not living at a rehab facility at all, just taking these daily medications lowers the risk of overdosing. At Senecor, Chris Kuhn didn't get access to these medications. It was a cold turkey situation. Cold turkey and work, which Chris would endure for about 18 months until a medical problem interrupted things. Chris had a cyst on his tailbone that kept getting infected. But Senecor continued sending him to work at a company called Coastal Bridge that repairs roads and bridges for the state of Louisiana. And my job there was to shovel rocks for like 14 to 16 hours a day. And I was doing that, and uh, this cyst busted. And it's a staph infection, basically. Coastal Bridge did not respond to multiple requests for comment. When Chris's cyst got infected a second time, Chris says he went to a hospital. They asked him if he had a history of MRSA, a kind of staph infection that doesn't respond to antibiotics and is contagious. Chris did have a history of it. You can't live in community living while you have this. So they set up for me to go home for a month, you know, get it cleared up, and then come back. Chris's mom picked him up. Senecor said they'd love to have him come back. But they also sent a letter to the court saying he'd relapsed repeatedly. He had, quote, left his room a mess, and he was, quote, non-responsive to treatment. Senecor asked the judge to remove Chris from the program. Chris ended up pleading guilty to his original felony charge, possession of meth. That charge will stick around on his criminal record. He got three years probation, a $1,500 fine, plus court costs. He had to pay $71 a month for his own supervision. Everything that happened to Chris at Senecor seemed to set him up to fail, to relapse, to risk overdose and death. But that's not what happened. Chris got on buprenorphine. He got a prescription from a doctor in town. Yeah, I haven't gotten in trouble since. And people ask me because I talk about Senecor, and they'll be like, well, it must have not been that bad. Look at you. You're doing good now. I'm like, Senecor does not get any of that credit. Not at all. Chris never made it to what Senecor calls the reentry phase. In reentry, about 18 months into the program, some participants do get some of their wages. They have to pay Senecor rent, $500 a month. And they need to save a certain amount of money, have a place to live, and a car in order to graduate. Chris left with nothing, except the plan he came up with during his stay there. My plan originally was I, uh, I wanted to go to undergrad 
do American history and constitutional law and then go to law school and then get sent a course, shut the fuck down. That was going to be my little mission. What did you decide on instead? Oh, welding. Because I already know how to weld. And it was always something that just calms me down. Like, I could be stressed out and as long as I'm welding something. Because when you put your hood down, there's nothing. It's just you and that little spark in front of you that you have to keep going just right. It just blocks everything out. I like that. Chris was getting a certification in welding at the community college where we interviewed him. After he got out of Senecourt, he lived with his dad for a few years. That's where we met his fiancée, Paige, and their two kids, Paisley and Erilyn. Oh, here's my munchkins. Yeah. They were so mad that you were not there to pick them up, Daddy. Really? Come here. They did not care that I was there. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you. Got a kiss? Daddy. That's the ultimate daddy's girl right there in that blue dress. Yeah. Got a kiss? She is daddy's girl. Did you have fun? Yeah. A few months ago, Chris and Paige and the kids moved into their own place, a mobile home on the edge of a lake. Chris has a full-time paid job as a welder now, and he says he hasn't relapsed since he left Senecor in 2017. Senecor told us almost 6,500 people have participated in its work-based programs in the past five years. In 2018, the most recent year we could get records for, those programs pulled in more than $7 million. $7 million that workers like Chris made for Senecor. That same year, CEO Bill Bailey made more than $400,000. So how many Senecors are out there? Are there other Bill Baileys profiting? It took me three years to scour the whole country for this rehab workforce. And I found out it's all around us. Numbers of that magnitude, frankly, is pretty shocking. I knew of programs that look a lot like this, but I had no clue that it was so extensive and so widespread. There has to be laws being broke here. People working like that, that's slave labor. I mean, we we outlawed slavery. To me personally, it was one of the most clever, smartest scams I've ever seen somebody come up with. Next week is our eighth and final chapter of American Rehab. Our team talked to hundreds of people to report Senecor's story. Over the course of our reporting, some of those people who helped us understand their experience with addiction passed away. Today's chapter is dedicated to them. The American Rehab Reporting Team is Shoshana Walter, Laura Starcheski, and Ike Shreeskandaraja. Brett Myers is our editor. Laura produced today's chapter, and she's our lead producer. Amy Julia Harris helped us report the story from the beginning and launch the project. We had additional editorial support from Narda Zakinu, Andy Donahue, and Esther Kaplan, and production help from WHYY in Philadelphia. Fact-checking by Rosemarie Ho. 
Victoria Baranetsky is our general counsel. Our production manager is Mwende Inahosa. Our production team includes Najib Amini, Catherine Miskowski, and Amy Mustafa. American Rehab's theme song, Lifeline, and original score are composed and performed by our sound design team, the dynamic duo, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Fernando, my man, Yo Aruda. Our CEO is Chris Scharfenberg. Matt Thompson is our editor-in-chief, and our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Support for Reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Democracy Fund, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson, and remember, there is always more to the story.